Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a collection of the best stories this week in arts and culture from across the island and around the world. And on the programme this time, surprise celebrity in the world of autism TikTok, the importance of the grain of the human voice with composer Jennifer Walsh, and a visit to hear improv in the wild at the House of Light at UL. But to start this week, if you could just answer a question... Are you a mind buddy of Basil Kirchin? Well, we'll soon fix that. Kirchin, who died in 2005, was a big band star turned avant-gardist who created music with a self-reliance and an immunity to fashion that, paradoxically, has made him a cult composer with an ever-growing fan base. Among Kirchin's Irish mind buddies is performance poet Quiva Lavelle, who'd like to suggest you too might find something you yearn for in the music of Basil Kirchin. Yeah, you're on. I'll tell you when it stops. Okay. <laughs> Let me tell you what you represent to me. Oh, no. Um, <clears throat> what we used to call in the old days a mind buddy. Okay. I first heard the music of Basil Kirchen, aged 14, on a compilation named Fuzzy Felt Folk. The opening track, I Start Counting, was the theme for a film of the same name starring Jenny Aguchu. Since then, Basil has continued to amaze and delight me with his drive to experiment and ability to adapt and defamiliarise everyday sound into something genuinely mind-bending. Born in Blackpool, Basil Kirchin got his start as a big band drummer at age 13. His father, Ivor Kirchin, was a big band leader and held a Parliament residency in Tottenham Court Road. Before long, Ivor and Basil were co-directing a hugely successful big band, touring with a repertoire of the greatest hits of the day, from jazz, boogie-woogie and swing to the hottest skiffle and jive. The Basil Kirchen band had unique appeal because they played Latin music, the sole genre to which jiving was permitted in the dance halls. Their fans included Elizabeth Taylor, they were signed to Parlophone by none other than the young George Martin. Sarah Vaughan and Billy Eckstein would only tour the UK on the condition that the Kirchen band played with them. But Basil grew tired of playing other people's music, of touring, and of the management side of running a band. Before the beatniks and hippies made it a cool thing to do, Basil travelled to India, and on that journey by sea, Basil's life works in big band music, including all of his irreplaceable live recordings, archived in a trunk, sank to the bottom of the ocean. This image has enchanted and haunted me for years now. It must have been a moment of pure ego death, but it cleared the ground for the subsequent musical rebirth. Basil's work in soundtracking, as he moved away from big band performance, began with composing music for imaginary films. And he began to make a name for composing uniquely strange compositions for film and TV, including the abominable Dr. Phoebes and Shuddered Room. In some cases, I prefer the imaginary films. The manifold images painted by the mind's eye when I listen to Kirchen's music. Many are exhilarating B-movies, so it's an interesting cross-section of British film. 
That's not to say that his work can't be heard in some famous films. In fact, his 22-note melody for 1965 British Mondo film Primitive London was seemingly swiped in 1976 by Bernard Herrmann for the now well-known theme to Martin Scorsese's film Taxi Driver. More recently, Basil can be heard in the 2022 robot sci-fi horror film Megan. But the role of a soundtrack and library composer is a much different and less ego-driven practice than that of your general recording artist in the 21st century. Basil moved to Hull and became more interested in experimentation. For instance, Basil became fascinated with discovering the sounds within sounds and the psychedelic mind travel of listening itself. His record based on these experiments, Worlds Within Worlds, did not sell well, but it is a perfect example of what I would call Deep Basil. Soon he would stop releasing records, but continued to create a wealth of work collaborating with his wife Esther Muller and the neurodivergent children with which he worked as an educator. His 10-minute ode to her and her work, Ian Me, is spectacular. There truly is a lifetime of work which can be overwhelming. So you might be wondering, where is the best place to begin? The two most frequent Basel records I play, which I feel vastly improve my day-to-day life, are Abstractions of the Industrial North and Don't Lose Your Cool. Abstractions of the Industrial North evokes and has all the tone shifts of a factory line. From busy, active, chaotic, loud, calm, streamlined and ready for presentation on the shop floor. If I'm working on something that I can listen to music while doing, I stick on abstractions and it immediately switches my brain on. I'm also convinced that abstractions of the industrial north anticipates, both in theme and its practice of sampling, the industrial music genre which later emerged from Basel's very own home city of Hull. Just three years after Basil Kirchen was making music like this, in 1973, Robin Gristle started making music like this in 1976. While Don't Lose Your Cool is a groovy swinging kind of album which simply put, is a perfect cure for loss of cool. Then of course, there are outliers within outliers. For example, what is to my knowledge the only disco track he ever made, Silicon Chip. A perfect track which is all the danceability and silly lyrics of an Italo disco song and yet sounds like it could have been released yesterday. And now that you've heard some Basil Kirchen, you may hear ripples of his influence out there in the world and perhaps you might become a mind buddy of Kirchen too. My shtick, as you might say, is to irk people with humour. Like on the one hand they have this uneasy feeling that it is human beings, but on the other hand they have to keep listening because they're not that sure. Yeah? I want to try and create that.
the musical universe of Basil Kirchin there, and your guide was Quiva Lavelle. Autistic Talk next on the Culture File Weekly. One rapidly growing suburb of TikTok centers on short videos for and by people with autism, and one of the most popular creators in that part of the world is author, Irish independent art and design columnist, and erstwhile culture file contributor, Eleanor Flagg. Her short videos about the everyday challenges and triumphs of being a mature person with only recently diagnosed autism have been accruing millions of views on the platform. She came to Culture File Towers to talk about social media celebrity for people with low hustle. We're autistic. We plan a trip to town like a military campaign. We're autistic. We warn each other before switching on appliances. What happened was that I wrote a novel and I wanted to go down the traditional publishing route of literary agent who sells it to a publisher. But it's no longer the case that that's a passive process for authors. You have to hustle, you have to self-promote and the all authors seem to do a lot of that work themselves. My agent told me that it would be very much easier for him to sell my book if I went on TikTok and got 10,000 followers. So your your agent said what you need, lady, because that's the way agents talk obviously, is a large following uh, on social media. I understand the need for promotion but I have very low hustle. That's just the way it is. So I thought that I can't really go on TikTok and just say that my book is brilliant because why would anybody be interested? I felt that if I were to put a big effort into going on TikTok, it had to be something that was meaningful for me and for other people. And ever since I got my autism diagnosis about three years ago, I have wanted to be an autism advocate and not quite known how. So it turns out TikTok is full of amazing autistic people. It is not only the place for books, it is also the place for autism. We're an autistic couple. One of us loves perfume. And the other one says candles are a fire hazard. We're an autistic couple. One of us likes colours and one of us likes neutrals. So you want to be a TikTok star. How, how do you go about that? If you are a Gen X person with low hustle and not a TikTok native, you need to hire a native guide. So I looked at TikTok and I thought, yes, I can do this, but I'm going to need help. So I had some mentoring sessions with a young person who knows their way around TikTok and they taught me about trends and about how to understand the algorithms and how to avoid the bots. TikTok is quite transparent about the metrics so you can see which TikToks are performing strongly and which ones have tailed off. And knowing what to post and when to post is um, reading the algorithms and knowing what is doing well is a big part of knowing what to post. Because if one TikTok is blowing up, there's no sense in putting another strong one out there. So you put something that's gentle and maybe only your followers will like. I'm used to studying something for years and years and years and only then do you feel permitted to pipe up about it. 
with TikTok, you just say it and you throw it at the world and see what the world responds. TikTok is easiest if you think of it as a game. The bots are looking for things that overstep their community guidelines, which is good because they help prevent bullying and also not good because things that are meant in quite a sincere way and aren't bullying at all can be interpreted by bullying as the bots. So always beware the bots. I needed somebody to teach me this and to show me the way. We're autistic. We leave the house once a day, max. We're autistic. We plan a trip to town like a military campaign. We're autistic. I made a TikTok post of what it was like to live in an autistic household because my husband is also autistic. The basic format was one of us likes quiet, one of us likes noise, one of us likes bright colours, one of us likes neutrals. And the intention was to show that two people can be autistic but yet have very different needs and requirements. During the making of this, I wanted to illustrate that one of us likes perfume. So I lit a scented candle and set a plant on fire and it blazed up and nearly torched the gaff. So there was debate on TikTok about whether I'd done this deliberately or not because it was a very popular post because TikTok loves people who do stupid things, really loves them. My argument was that I had um, done this accidentally, which was true because I would never endanger the place that I lived. But I used the phrase, I would never burn down the house. So the bots thought that the words burn down the house were definitely bullying, even though I was just stating the obvious. And I got a community violation and a minor shadow ban. Outside Lidl and Kinsale, I need to buy food. Either I do it in an unprepared fashion, like a charging bull with a shopping trolley, or else I don't do it at all. We're going for the charging bull. Non-Irish people, the shopping trolleys eat coins. Weird thing. I was wondering whether I have a parasocial relationship with you. You're obviously somebody that I've known for, for many, many years. But recently, I've mostly seen you on TikTok. What amazes me about TikTok is that it feels less para than I thought it would be. People message me when they like my posts. They send me the most lovely messages. This woman messaged me and she said, thank you for the post. And she said that her 10-year-old daughter had just been diagnosed autistic and they watch my posts together and that the girl really likes it because it shows her that it's kind of okay to be autistic and be grown up and be messing around and be funny and chaotic. I get the most lovely, lovely, lovely comments. So when you post a video, you can see how many people have viewed it and you can see how many people have liked it. So what's your kind of most successful video then? I've had three videos with over a million views. One of the one is where I nearly set the house on fire. Another is the one where I was talking about the experience of being an autistic, undiagnosed autistic parent of an undiagnosed autistic child in the 1990s and just how generally chaotic that was. That music is designed to torture autistic people and so is this light. So I'm maybe going to try and come back later. 
when it's less jangly, it's autism hour later on. I suppose the next step is merch. That's, that's you, you know, like where where's the commercial upside of this? Are we going to get T-shirts, beanies? Where, where are you going with the merch? So the merch one is interesting because the reason that I went on TikTok was that I wanted to promote my novel that I had put my heart and soul in and the other novels that I've written that are my expression of myself in the world and the meaningful thing that I've done. But maybe that's reversed. Maybe the TikTok is the way that I find my meaning in the world and these books are just merch. Eleanor Flegg there and you can find her TikToks at Eleanor Flegg on the platform. Now, the House of Light is a somewhat counterintuitive name for a musical establishment, you might think, but when architect Daniel Cordier described his vision for the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance at UL, light was the key. This year, the Academy is celebrating its 30th birthday, and tomorrow, a year-long programme of events begins with brand-new work popping up all over UL, including a programme of duologues, improvised performances between a electronics and trumpet, or harpsichord and electronics, or indeed, as we'll hear now, contemporary dancers making magic with a piper. Culture Files' Louise McMahon went to experience the building and the making. I'll show you the ritual. One of the, the secrets of this building is that there is a ritual pit built into the foundation of the foyer. My name is Helen Phelan, and I'm the director of the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance. The building was designed by an amazing architect called Daniel Cordier, and in the initial architectural brief, he actually described the building as a house of light, actually very inspired by medieval monastic architecture. And of course, those kinds of monastic communities were centres of learning. There's a very old tradition that goes right back to the Egyptian pyramids of, you know, when you, when you build a new structure like this and you disturb the earth, you have to make an offering to the earth to re-establish equilibrium. You would find a little pit under the, the flagstone in front of the hearth. And the ancient tradition was that there would be a, a sacrificial offering. It was often a horse's head. Of course, by the 20th century, it was replaced by like a bucket or a gourd. And like so many wonderful ancient ritual practices, the meaning of the ritual gets forgotten. But what remains was this hollowed out space that was really lovely for percussive dance. So on, buried underneath the ground, there's a bag of hazelnuts, there's a baron, a pair of bones and a replica Bronze Age horn. So I always like to think of the ritual pit as almost like this secret source of energy for anybody who is here in the building. I am Matthew Noon. I am the course director of the BA in World Music here at the Irish World Academy in the University of Limerick. And I am responsible for curating the Academy 30 House of Light event coming up this week. So the House of Light concept is is about the energy that's created in the dance and then also the energy that's created through the students and they're, they're moving through the building and their creative work. So the idea of the event is to sort of showcase that. So 
Have you guys done introductions? There are going to be a series of what we're calling duologues. We had a little rehearsal. Already? Yeah. Which are duet performances uh, between two very different creative entities. We have a flute, not a, not a pipe. Yeah, we're going to be seeing some contemporary dancers collaborate with a piper. My name is Juju. Marian. Jiaxing. Yes. So is, is this impro improvisation? Improvisation is... You can't make a wrong decision, but you're always on the verge of being wrong. And so it's kind of like you're walking this blade. I would think it's um, also listening, but listening with my eyes, like with the dancers, other dancers listening with my eyes and sensing and... Um, I think as Connell playing the flute as another dancer almost. It's a kind of magic, you know? It's like when you don't, like you were saying, you don't know what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. I know this isn't choreographed. I know if I, if I look away, I'll, I'll miss something that could be, that I'll never see again. You know, I might never see again. Improvisation is a different kind of space. It doesn't really fit so well into module codes and timetables. But it's going to happen more, and and that's also why I took this opportunity with the House of Light because Helen said, "Okay, curate something." I was like, "Really? <laughs> okay." So I said, "What about if we fill the entire building with like three rooms going continuously of people improvising in duets who have never played together before?" I was like, "Yeah, that would be amazing." <laughs> yeah, and then people get the taste of it. Matthew Noon and improvisers there at the House of Light in UL and the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance 30th anniversary celebrations go on throughout 24. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, Why Voice Matters. In her journey into the many worlds of AI, composer Jennifer Walsh now reaches the realm of voice cloning, using recordings of a real human voice, say like this one, to create a version of that voice saying or indeed singing words it never did. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. Last week, the American Federal Communications Commission, the FCC for short, voted to ban the use of AI-generated voices in automated phone calls. This was a result of scammers using AI to generate President Joe Biden's voice in order to deter voters from voting Democrat in the New Hampshire primary. Deep fakes of Biden's voice joined the massive chorus of AI-generated voices that have flooded our daily lives over the last year. YouTube is full of covers of songs sung by AI versions of Ariana Grande, Drake, Freddie Mercury, Frank Sinatra. Fans of Johnny Cash can now hear the star singing Barbie Girl, a track he never sang while he was alive. And performers who are still very much alive have found a new way to monetize their voices. For example, James Earl Jones, the voice of Darth Vader, licensed his voice so that it could be generated with AI for future Star Wars films and shows. The human voice is absolutely crucial to the power of generative AI. 
The voice, more than any other type of sound, is notoriously difficult to model accurately. The voice is evocative in a way that no other sound is. It describes authorship powerfully and definitively. The neurotypical brain prioritises the voice above all else. An entire symphony orchestra can be playing, but the listener will hone in on the words coming out of the mouth of a single singer without thinking about it. A musician who uses their voice will participate in AI in a very different way to a musician who doesn't. The voice is the key to interactivity, giving the fandom the chance to act more intimately, more invasively than at any point in the history of music. How does an unknown vocalist break into the market under these conditions? Will musicians shape their voices to be distinctive, to be sticky enough, to be modelled easily, to be memeable? Will musicians release excessive material to ensure the fandom can accurately model their voice? Will a musician's goal be to become successful enough to license a model of their voice, just like James Earl Jones did, thereby ensuring continued monetization? In his famous 1972 essay, The Grain of the Voice, Roland Barth writes that the grain is the body in the voice as it sings, the hand as it writes, the limb as it performs. I shall not judge a performance according to the rules of interpretation, but according to the image of the body given to me. By grain, Barth means the distinctive acoustic profile which differentiates one voice from another, what musicians more commonly call timbre. The grain is key because it invokes corporeality, sensuality. It doesn't matter whether the image of the body given to the listener exists in physical space. Fandoms have evolved around virtual idols and influencers like Hatsune Miko and Michaela because the voice alone is powerful enough to embody a disembodied being. If you can model the voice... You can serve gender expression, age, class, ethnicity, body type, ability. If you can model the voice, you can serve your president telling you not to vote. You can serve your dead mother speaking to you again, your worst enemy whispering sweet nothings in your ear, the people you'd rather not allow through your border. If you can model the voice, you can make memes, deepfakes, infinite podcasts wreak irreversible damage. You can monetize a person or character in perpetuity. You can outsource the monetization of yourself. The creative potential is huge, and so is the potential for election interference, for ruin. I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. Life in plastic, it's fantastic. You can brush my hair, undress me everywhere. Come on, Barbie, let's go party, cause I'm in a Barbie world. If you wanna be my lover, you gotta get with my friends. Make it last forever, friendship never ends. I put my hands up to play my song, the butterflies fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Democratic Party in the USA. This is what you guys call music? Well, I'll be damned. The sound of Not Johnny Cash there, and before that, you heard Jennifer Walsh's latest in her series, Things Know Things. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more uncanny vocalizations next Saturday tea time. Until then, bye now. <laughs>